Today's reading is from Genesis 3, 1 to 9. We'll be reading from the New International Version. Please feel free to follow along as the text is presented on the screens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? One of my best friends, he was actually in my wedding. Uh, From junior high, we got to know each other. We had a lot of mischief together and then high school, and then college, and we would call, I would think both of us would say we were college drinking buddies. And then uh, I found Christ, and he went into an alcohol addiction. And then um, 35 years later or so, we reconnected, and we've had lots of conversations. And um, I got to find out what it was like for him to be a recovering alcohol or an alcoholic and then a recovering alcoholic and then he got to find out what it's like for me to be a pastor and he talks and I don't, I don't know and everyone's different but he, he talks uh, I, don't want, I don't know how do I say this kindly but he talks an awful lot about his addiction and his recovery and he asked me one time about that he says is it too much do I wear you out with my stories of the past and the present and my struggles. And I said, no, not at all. I'm a pastor. I love talking about sin. (laughs) It's one of my favorite topics. But I said, most people aren't as honest as you are. It's one of the gifts of if you have people who are recovering in a 12-step whatever. uh, It's one of the gifts that they bring to our lives. And uh, they don't they don't do it perfectly, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. So I, and um, we're exploring this connection as we lay foundations for this word addiction. And I'm going to do that again today of the connection between sin and addiction. And um, whatever you call yourself, whether you call yourself a sinner or an addict, uh, here's, here's my concern is that you would come into a place like this on a Sunday morning and you would think, I'm the only one who's struggling. And that is not true. Can we all say it's not true? It's not true. And it's just, it comes in all kinds of flavors and colors, the struggles that we have. But that's one of the enemies. uh, uh, We'll talk about the devil a little bit this morning, but it's one of his voices is that you're the only one. And you never are. 
Um, so uh, with that, I want to get us right into this. And um, to build this bridge between the word sin and addiction and between and the fact that we're all strugglers, I want to call on uh, witness number one here. From uh, this, His name is, uh, uh, it's actually you know, backwards, it's Mate Gabor would be, it's a Hungarian name. And um, he is from uh, Vancouver, Canada, and he's a physician who has worked with addicts uh, most of his life. And this is his, his quote. Addicts have much in common with the society that ostracizes them. In the dark mirror of their lives, we can trace the outlines of our own. So he's... he's well, to ostracize anybody is not, it's not a good thing. And, and, and when we think about who Jesus Christ is and the invitation that he gives to everybody, so that word ostracize is strong. He's talking about our culture in general, but hopefully that wouldn't happen in a place where Jesus is central. That's the concern I have about making this connection between sin and addiction. Because we know we're all sinners, right? I mean, you've got to know that part first. But we don't think of ourselves in the same way we would think about addicts. And I'm trying to make the case that maybe we should. This is from Leslie Jameson in her book, The Recovering. And before I read it, uh, I shouldn't put it up there because now you're reading it. Okay, don't read it. Um, I want to say why, she, why she's writing this and some of the complexities of the word addiction. But in 2013, the American... Psychiatric Association, APA. They have this thing called the DMS. If I get it, if I get it right, DSM, DMS. I've forgotten. You guys, did I get it right? DMS, manual for yeah. And in there, um, they reclassified um, the the phrase uh, substance use disorder from a category to a spectrum. And so everyone's on the spectrum. That's, that's the APA. And she's responding and reflecting to that change. And so here's why, what she says. This isn't a denial of the physical mechanisms, neurotransmitters and their adaptations, or a denial of the chemical dependence as a reality. It's simply an acknowledgement that the operative urges of addiction aren't unrelated to the desires that show up in everyone. The urge to court bliss to dull pain, and to find relief. So in, in, in this room, I think we've, if we're honest, we would all say we've done, we've done that. And so we have this, this uh, I'm trying to build this case for an organic connection between sin and addiction. My concern in part, my, my first concern is really for you, for, for me, and that we not be, feel like we're the only ones. But my other concern is that we see the Bible as having authority not just to speak into that word sin, but also into the word addiction. And we, we give addiction kind of this separate category uh, where because it comes out of the, the scientific world with research and, and psychology and all that stuff, that somehow we think that then it cannot, the Bible then can't really speak to something that is so modern. <laughs> Big mistake. Um, and the word sin is bigger, it's always bigger than we think it is, and it would cover this. But here, here's the relationship between, that we tried to talk about last week, between sin and addiction. They're, 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 are, they're a little different, but they have this really big shared overlap in this thin diagram. And um, 
You might think of, of addiction, this is one way to think about addiction, is that it's sin on steroids, uh, if that makes any sense. But it's, it's very much related, but it would be a sin that, that's, that's gone and um, a little bit further. And so we would think about it, and because of the story we're reading this morning is from the Garden of Eden, right? It's a very foundational story in the Bible. I looked at my Bible, and I think it's the most uh, used part of my Bible, which says I'm a really big sinner, right? That's where it's all, that's where sin started. But my paper is wearing thin here in this part of my Bible. And um, we want to show this relationship between sin or we could call garden variety sin. That's my pun for the day. Yeah, I know. I know, it's bad. But it's true. Garden variety sin and addiction. So here's our, uh, our three uh, categories or three stopping points along the way. The cell's job or the cell that the, the serpent does to the woman. And we, we'll, we won't get into the addiction so much there, but in the fatal attraction section, we will. And then the last part is hiding and seeking. So I'm just going to take this verse by verse. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to go through that. If not, I'll read it for you, most of it at least. Now the serpent was more crafty. I'll read that part again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? More crafty. So somehow Satan, and this is, the, this is the belief, is that Satan somehow incarnated himself into this snake or this serpent. And uh, we don't need to go into the details of the, of, about that because the text isn't about the serpent as much as it is about us. And I don't know, there's mystery there. But that's, that's the, what the writer is, it seems to be trying to say. And then, more crafty, and so when I read that, I just slowed down this week and I was reading that, more crafty, if I only knew that, if you only knew that little phrase there, that this, this serpent is more crafty than any other creature, you're thinking, uh-oh, here comes a story, right? There's trouble brewing. Something that has to do with this serpent being crafty. And he's maybe saying that this story is not going to end well because the person that this serpent interacts with is going to be overmatched. She's going to be in over her head. This is one crafty serpent. Deceit, as I mentioned last week, or, or lying or whoever, whatever word you have for it, is the absolute rocket fuel for addictions. It's also what gets sin going as well. So they have this in common. But an addiction just falls flat. It deflates when truth is brought into the equation. Um, so uh, we find out that this serpent is one who uses lies. Now, if you're going to use lies, if you're good at it, what do you need to mix with the lies? You need truth. Lies by themselves, if it's just an outright lie, who's going to believe it? Well, maybe some, but... And, you know, who, who's really going to believe? So you have to, for, for the devil to, this is a, a phrase that um, I'm borrowing from somebody, but for the devil to do his best work, he has to look, or to do his worst work, he has to look his best. In other words, the devil wears lots of makeup. He has to look good. And uh, he, you can see that here. He's trying to make this sin that he's wanting this, he wants to make it palatable, reasonable, logical. And he does a pretty good job of it. And by the way, the writer is wanting you, the reader, me, 
to enter into this story and to not just see this as something that happened a long time ago, but something that is part of each of our, our uh, human DNA thing. So, uh, you deceit, and then he uses this phrase, did God really say, did God really say, do not eat from any tree in the garden? And he's introducing some uh, things there that God didn't say, but he's, he's also repeating some things that God did say. So he mixing, he's mixing the truth and the lies. Um, uh, what he's doing, and this is, this is important, is he's getting, there's all these trees. Think of all these trees. It could have been thousands of trees. We don't know but multiple trees. And there's two trees in particular. One is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were, that was the one commandment. The only commandment they had was to not eat from that. But what was, the, what, if you were to say it positively, what would you say? Look at all these trees that God has given you. Look at all these trees. The tree of life is in there as well. Look at all the fruit you could eat. The watermelons. Well, they don't grow on trees. Peaches. Peaches. I love peaches, as some of you know. Yeah. Well, maybe watermelons did grow on trees back then. But you have all this fruit you can eat, and there's just one tree in the middle that you cannot eat the fruit from. And what is the devil, what is the serpent doing? He's getting you to focus on what? The prohibition. The one thing that's forbidden, instead of saying, look at everything God has given you. Does that, does that ring any bells in anybody? I've used this illustration before, but it, it's... Uh, it's, it's just been with me my whole life. When I was in sixth grade, <clears throat> I had a, <clears throat> a yeah, chemistry experiment thing. What do you call it? Kit thing. And, um, you, you, you know, you, you pour water on stuff and it smokes and does stuff. And, and um, I, I kept it in my, my bathroom, which was, was downstairs. And, when it, and I put a sign on the door saying, keep out. It was the only drawer that had that sign on it, and everybody that came there said they had to look. That, I mean, it's just whatever that is. You forbid something. The forbidden fruit tastes sweeter, right? So we have that going on here that he's prohibiting. But he's doing it with a... This is the key thing here. It's not, it's not so much what he says. It's the mocking voice. And so hear it this way. Did God really say that this is so ridiculous? Who would believe that? Don't fall for that one. That's the voice behind the words. It's a tone of voice thing. It's an attitude thing that comes with this, this, these words about uh, do not eat from the tree. You've got to be kidding me. God said that? Well, the woman responds. And by the way... Um, this is probably, if it, read, if it read differently here, would it, would it, in an ideal world, which this was, <laughs> irony, yeah, well, in an ideal world, um, it would say that the woman just ran away. She knew she was overmatched and that she would be in trouble if she entered into conversation with this crafty servant, serpent. It doesn't say that, though. It says that the woman said to the serpent, so she enters into conversation, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God, uh, God did say you must not eat from the tree. So she, she remembers the positive, but you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And then she adds this phrase that God never said, and if you, do, you must not touch it. 
or you will die. And so the woman seems uh, uh, just a little bit confused. And of course she would be confused. We would be confused too. Um, and uh, then she says her words, you shall surely die. So she knows there's consequences, but she does seem a little off her game and never met a talking serpent before, most likely. So, yeah. So the serpent comes back in verses 4 and 5 and says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will surely not die. That's a direct contradiction of what the woman said or what God said. So now he's, he is being very, very, very bold in what he's saying. God knows your eyes will be open. And when we get to that part in, when afterwards, in fact, he's right. Her eyes were opened. But it's not good what she sees. So the devil isn't always wrong but he sure messes with things. Yeah. Here's the, here's the deal. Um, he's, he's at the core of it. He's introducing a seed of doubt. And this is all the devil says. There's no more. He, he just, at this point, he is an actor who steps away. And the woman is left there with these words ringing in her ears. And what's going on inside of her is something like, can I trust God? What if, he's, what, if, what if the devil is right? What if God is withholding something good from me? And the lie, be, this is called the lie beneath all lies, is that God doesn't want what's best for you. Because if he doesn't want what's best for you and he gives you a commandment, then you're not sure if that commandment is going to lead you to a good place. And you can just play that out in your own life story, how many times that has not worked out. So the lie beneath the lie, can God be trusted? Okay, that seems to apply to all of us. And let's go to the fatal attraction part. So we have this woman, and um, the serpent seems to have left. We don't hear anything more from him. We, you know, where's Adam? You could fill in the blank on that one. You can say he's out doing something, I don't know. But maybe he comes on the scene at this point because he does enter into the story. We don't know what happened to Adam. It's not, many, many people have tried to guess, but um, that's not, I guess, for us to do. But um, you have this woman, and what's she looking at? Remember, there's all these trees in the garden, but what is she looking at? There's just one tree that's captured her imagination. Uh, Whatever has your focus... So this is the crazy thing. I told Pastor Sharon this this morning. <laughs> I'll just go ahead and say it. When I was writing this section of the sermon on Friday, I don't know. I could swear I heard these cookies calling me. <laughs> and I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about this until I came back to it. And, you know, you think it, it was uh, after lunch, and you start thinking about it. And there's all kinds of food in the kitchen, but it was, these, it was these cookies, you know. And so you eat one. That's not enough. That was sure good. <laughs> that was sure good. So four cookies later, <laughs> you know, I came back to this and I thought, well, it must be true. 
So she's in this place looking at this tree that has been forbidden, looking at the fruit that is forbidden. And what does she feel inside of herself? She's, because of the seed of doubt, she's, she's feeling some kind of a lack or a need or a desire, however you want to say it, that, that is bubbling up. Basically, she's no longer content, would be the way we would say it. And we could also say that she is in the market to be seduced, right? I mean, you know when you've, you, you can kind of feel that thing, when you're in the market to be seduced. I, you start thinking about something, and nine times out of ten, you end up, you know, you start thinking about it here and you end up over here fully engaged, whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's hard. She's got this lack of contentment. And in verse 6, <clears throat> this gives you an idea of the process that she went through. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, meaning it's practical, this is really practical, and it's pleasing to the eye, beautiful, Practical, beautiful, and it's uh, desirable for gaining wisdom. It's spiritual. Oh, must be from God. So it's, she's thinking about it. Remember the devil's, uh, he wants us to make, there, there to be a logic there, to, be, uh, to make sin accessible, you've got to make it look good, palatable. And this is practical, and it's beautiful, and it's spiritual. How do you say no to that? Well, what is it about uh, a crime? To, to prove a crime, you have to establish motive and means and opportunity. Isn't that right? I mean, some of you are in the criminal justice world. And she's got uh, the motive. I mean, she's got this lack of, of contentment. She's got the means. She's got free will. God gave her free will. So she has the means and she has the opportunity. That fruit is right in front of her, just inches away. Picture yourself at a computer, maybe clicking. I mean, it, it's just, it just, the pull is strong. This is uh, Leslie Jameson, um, amazing, it's a very raw book. I'm careful to recommend it, but very amazing insight into whole, all this. The more you need a thing, whether it's a man or a woman, or a bottle, or sex, or a career success, whatever it is. Whether it's a man or a bottle of wine, the more you are unwittingly convincing yourself you are not enough without it. This is at the heart of addiction, but it's also at the heart of sin. You are not enough without it. Now, it, that little word, is going to be different for all of us. What is your it? That's a fair question to ask as we go through this text. What is it that you are not enough without? And it could be anything. We tried to make that case last week. I'll continue to try to make that case. It's just thank God for 12-step programs that have honest people in them that are able to put a name to their it. Uh, What is it? Now, Let's just learn a little bit more about addiction here or remind ourselves what they are. Picture yourself coming back to that tree time and time again. The tree with the forbidden fruit. And you're going through this process each and every time. Something like this 
where you uh, kind of rationalize it. it it's uh, practical and it's beautiful and it's spiritual. And you're seeking some kind of relief from a distress in your life. And so you enter in, you take the fruit. And it gives you that, it, the dopamine thing that goes into your pleasure center, it gives you relief from your distress in the short term, but in the long term it creates chaos in your life. That's the deal, short term, long term. And that long term distress in your life then makes you come back again because you're feeling distressed and you want relief. And that, that, most people who write on addictions, they have something in their definition that says, you're addicted when you seek relief from the very thing that is causing the distress. So that's the cycle, that's the trap. And it gets reinforced. Uh, it gets, it, it actually, you're, we're, we're made in such a way, um, God has made us in such a way where um, we actually can reprogram our um, the neuro, whatever they are, is up there. All right, there's my scientific knowledge. But it is, it is we actually, they know a lot more about how this happens, the, the pathways, that's, that's the word I'm looking for, uh, neurological pathways. And um, you, can, you can reprogram them, and it just, it's hard to break out. Okay, so here's, um, here's what Leslie Jameson says. It was a, it, this is taking a little bit further, it was a bait and switch it promised bliss and offered shame. It promised self-sufficiency and offered dependence. That's what, remember, what does an addiction do? It lies to you. It promises you one thing and delivers something else, always. And sin, same thing. Again, we're, we're covering that territory, which is true for both sin and addictions, but we see it more clearly in addictions. The devil, uh, love this phrase, the devil sells you ice cream, and then he makes you feel bad after you eat it. And then you eat it again. And you feel really bad. And this is, so this is how it works. And, it's, and it's what it, the word shame up there is what keeps that cycle sealed up. So you, it makes it really hard to break out. It's why yeah, it, shame is all over us. We're going we're to talk more about that next week. But um, it's the secret sauce that goes on the ice cream. How's that? Okay, let's go to the third thing, hiding and seeking, because this is where we can actually share some good news. Are you ready for some good news? Yeah. Hide and seek. Verse 7. Well, the eyes of both of them were opened, as the devil said they would be, right? He said that. Now, what did he say when they were open? They were going to be able to discern between good and evil, or see good and evil, but all they see is evil. All they feel is bad. And what shame does is it gives you that voice, I am bad. It's not, not necessarily I've done something wrong as much as I am bad. And when you say I am bad, what do you want to do? You want to hide. That's their impulse, is to hide. And so they do this. It's almost pathetic when you think about, I don't know if you've ever seen fig leaves, but if you go down to Trader Joe's and you look at a jar of fig leaves, it doesn't look like it's going to help. I mean, um, so it's pathetic. I think that's the point uh, because God has something better for them, even in this story, to cover themselves with. But they hide, and they hide from each other, and of course they hide from God, says in verse 8. When they heard the sound of 
the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love that imagery. And of course, it's, it's made so we can understand it. God wasn't a person literally walking, as, I mean, unless he incarnated himself in some way. But it, it's, um, he makes his presence known in ways that we can understand it. In the cool of the day, the time of day where God would often come and talk and be with his two children. That was the norm. And he comes on this day, and it's different. And he knows this. He knows what has happened. You see, instead of... I wonder what the story would be like if instead of hiding, they had immediately run to their father and said, Father, forgive us. We ran into somebody more craftier than us, and we really blew it. I wonder if the story would have been a lot different. But they hide. As the Geico commercial says, that's what people do. That's what humans do, is we we hide. We're good at it. And they're concerned. The reason they're hiding is because they're naked. And that means exposed and vulnerable. And they're, they're sure that if God sees them in this state, he's going to accuse them of something. And he's going to abandon them. And he's not going to love them. And this is why they hide. When my, my friend, uh, my recovering alcohol, alcoholic friend was telling me about, he's, he's told me a lot <laughs> about his addiction. He eventually settled on vodka because vodka is clear and odorless. So, it's, so I'm told. I know it's clear. I don't know about the odorless part. But, um, but that, was, that's, that was his way of, of getting into the hiding. And then he would hide bottles around the house or in his car until his wife at the time, she would find them and she was part of his hiding system. She wouldn't say anything. This is part of addiction too. This is, we'll, we'll explore this more later. But she wouldn't say anything until it became unbearable and she left him. And it became more unbearable for him. More vodka. More vodka. That's, that's his story. Until he hit bottom. All right? There's... But I only use that illustration to, to say that that's, it, 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 he's, he's honest about it. We all hide stuff. Twelve-steppers are at least sometimes more honest about it. So humans hide, and what does God do? What does it say there? He seeks. He comes out. He looks. He knows. He knows what's happened. He's God. But he wants to draw it out of them, getting them to see what they've done. And he asks this this question. Where are you? And it's not a question of geography. Don't think that. He knows where they are, in the, hiding there in the bushes somewhere. He can see it. He has like, these kind of eyes that can see anything. Where are you? I want, I want to hear from you where you are in relationship to me. That's what God is saying to them. And so we see here that sin is not really about rule-breaking. It's about relationship-breaking. And this relationship has been broken. But God seeks. 
He doesn't give up. The whole story of the Bible is a seeking God. In fact, when we come to Jesus Christ, what does he say about himself? His mission to the world is, I came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And then he, the only one, we'll talk about free will later, but he's the only one that had true free will, and he used his free will to become naked on a cross. Amazing what God would do. What extremes he will go to to reach people who are wanting to hide from him. That's, a, a, that's pretty amazing. So the question that came to them is the same one that comes to us. We find ourselves in this text, hopefully, where are you? Where are you? And you can hide, but he's going to keep asking, where are you? Where are you with me? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ open our hearts to answer that question. Let's pray. Our holy and loving God, each of us um, has an it, if we're brave enough to name it, or at least one, something that without it we're not enough. And the only right answer is, is you. Without you, we're not enough. But there's so many other options. And we know what it feels like to stand in front of that tree. So if you're bold enough right now, um, tell God what your it is. The thing that you're not good without you feel that way and to do that you have to know that he's not going to go anywhere he's still going to be there with his loving arms whenever you are truthful enough to say what it is His voice says, yes, I love you. I've always loved you. And I always will love you. But I love you enough to not let that it be the center of your life. Oh, Lord God, give us courage to take whatever the next step is for each of us. Whether we call ourselves sinners or addicts, doesn't matter. We're in need of you. We're in need of your grace. Whatever that next step is, Lord, strip away the lies. And may we run towards your loving arms. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord.